So a few years ago, a group of friends in D.C. gathered together at a, around a backyard dinner table on a warm summer night. And they were doing so to spend an evening enjoying good company and good food and good drink. And it was one of those dinner parties that the conversation just kind of flowed into each other. The evening went on. It was like time didn't even exist. It's one of those meals where the food and the wine just complemented each other. They went well together. It was one of those nights where friendships are strengthened. One of those nights that you look back and you remember. Toward the end of the evening, around 10 p.m., everything changed. Because a man walked into that backyard holding a gun. See, in a moment, everything changed. And the man started saying, give me your money. Give me your money or I'm going to shoot. Of course, everyone started looking at each other, right? Panic, terror, like your worst nightmare. And he's asking for money, but they live in a digital world. Nobody's got cash on them. They're looking around like, what are we going to do? And so as the report goes, they started trying to reason with the man and negotiating with him. But their every negotiation just started escalating and the tensions are starting to mount. And the man started yelling more and started to get more tense. And then one of the women spoke up at the party and said, hey, you know, we're here tonight celebrating. Why don't you sit down and have a glass of wine with us? The look on the man's face completely changed. And so he grabbed a cup, and he tasted the wine, and he said, hey, that's a really good glass of wine. And he took a piece of the cheese, and he said, man, that's some really good cheese. And he put the gun in his pocket, and he sat down. Of course, all kinds of things are just swirling through everybody's mind, right? After a few minutes, he said, you know, I think I'm in the wrong place. And then he said something nobody expected. With tears flowing from his eyes, he said, I need a hug. And one by one, all these people who had just been victims came by and gave this man a hug. And after this, he said he was sorry, and he walked out. Now, needless to say, everybody after that dinner party broke down from just the emotional roller coaster. You got to believe nobody forgot that night, right? You see, in the presence of fear and terror, one guest at the dinner party flipped the script. Everything was on the up, right? Escalating, tensions mounting, fear. And in one simple question, hey, why don't you sit down and have a glass of wine? Everything changed. She flipped the script. She did the opposite of what anyone would have expected, and it transformed the situation. There was a desperate and hurting man who had turned violent. He crashed a dinner party looking to make some money. And instead of escalating the situation, one person offered a gesture of love and flipped the script. And not only did it transform the situation, but it transformed the people around that table. With the text we just read, the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said something that none of them expected. 
At that last Passover meal, Jesus flipped the script and transformed a Passover meal into what we know today as the Lord's table. See, you gotta remember, the disciples are Jewish. They're observing the Passover just as they had done each and every single year from the time they were little boys. In fact, they'd even had multiple Passover meals with Jesus before. And as Jesus' death draws near, he meets with the disciples in that upper room to have one last meal. And this isn't just an ordinary farewell meal. This is the Passover meal. So in God's perfect and divine plan, on the night before Jesus dies, this last meal is no random meal. And on this night, Jesus flips the script and changes everything. You see, each time we gather at Seven Mile Road, we, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We do it every single week. We take the bread and we take the cup. And as we begin our time, I want to ask, are we aware of what we hold in our hands when we take the bread? Are we aware of what we hold in our hands when we hold the cup? Are we coming to the table with the right understanding? Are we coming to the table with the right kind of posture? And are we coming to the table with the right kind of response? And so this morning, as we look at Mark 14, we're going to see two major themes. We're going to see the preparation for the table, and we're going to see our participation at the table. And my hope is that by the time we're done, it would transform the way that we prepare and participate at the Lord's table. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark 14, verse 1. We'll even have the words on the screen, and we'll begin with the preparation for the table. Now, with the next 16 verses, you're going to see several different groups of people making preparations centered around this table. And all of their preparations are going to be made as it relates to how they see Jesus. So what that means is the way that they prepare is directly correlated to how they see Jesus. Let's see that here in verse 1. Mark says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so now we've been walking through this last week of Jesus's life over the last few weeks. And today it's Wednesday of the most important week of the most important person who has ever lived. And we know it's Wednesday because Mark tells us it's two days before the Passover, The scriptures tell us that the Passover begins at twilight, and this year it happened to fall on a Friday. And so if you know Jewish calendaring systems, you know that the way the Jews orient their days is that a day starts in the evening, and it goes to the next, uh, the, the following day's evening. And so it's actually Thursday night when they have the Passover, but by Jewish reckoning, that's Friday. And so today's Wednesday, if we know it's two days before the Passover, And so taken together, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is this week-long celebration where they remember the faithfulness of God to deliver their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. If you want to think about it, the Passover is kind of like their 4th of July. It was the beginning of their identity as a nation. And so they would come together every year and they would eat a meal of roasted lamb and bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And at this meal, it was like a dramatic reenactment of what their forefathers had gone through at the original Passover meal. And so the roasted lamb would remind them that their forefathers had killed a spotless lamb. 
and that they had taken its blood and they'd painted it over the doorposts and the door frames so that the judgment would pass over their home. And they ate unleavened bread that night because this was a hurried meal. See, they didn't have time to let the yeast and the dough rise. They had to make it quick, just flour and water, make the bread and get it done because they were gonna be delivered that night. They needed to eat quickly because God was going to set his people free. And so during this week-long feast of unleavened bread, people would remove all of the yeast out of their house. It was a way to prepare. It was a way to, uh, yeast in the Bible, this leaven symbolizes sin. And so all week long, they'd make sure that, that they had um, taken all of it out. It was like beginning anew. And they wouldn't eat any bread that had leaven in it. See, at the Passover, they were to remember that they used to be slaves. You see, they were once not a people. They had no identity of their own. In fact, do you know they didn't even have a calendar? See, when you're a slave, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is. It's a work day. As a slave, you don't even own your time. And so when God delivered his people out of slavery, one of the very first things he did was to give them a calendar. Think about how much our calendar helps orient and shape our life. God gave them the gift of a calendar. And so the Passover month was Nisan. And so God said, on the 15th day of Nisan, you are to celebrate the Passover each and every year. He's saying, don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I have done to deliver you out of bondage and slavery. So it's Wednesday, and the Passover is two days away. And on the whole, Wednesday kind of passes pretty quietly, especially compared to what we've seen already, right? Sunday, there's the pomp and circumstance as Jesus arrives and shows up in Jerusalem. And then he goes into the temple, and you've got the loud clanging of the tables flipping over. Animals are going everywhere. Money's flying all around. It's quiet compared to Tuesday's debates, Seemed like Jesus couldn't move another foot without somebody bringing a question to try to trap him so that either the mob would seize him or the authorities would arrest him. See, Wednesday's quiet. The only sounds that Mark records are the sounds of the religious elite. See, the men who are supposed to be holy, the men who are supposed to be righteous, the men who are supposed to be caring for and leading the people of God are hiding behind closed doors at Caiaphas's house. And inside, they're plotting stealthily to kill Jesus. See, they've had every opportunity to arrest him in broad daylight, but they know they can't do that. They know there'll be an uproar from the people because they have no cause. They have no grounds, but yet they're threatened by Jesus and they want him taken out. Now, if this group had been Italian, they would have hired a hitman. That's just what we do. But since they're religious, they set up a committee. <laughs> and they gather to brainstorm a way to figure out how can they arrest Jesus while avoiding a major uproar from the masses. And they say, we can't do it during the feast. We know there'll be an uproar. And they know the Roman occupation hates mobs. They hate riots. And when that happens, they just come by and blow everybody up. So they're trying to keep the peace. At the same time, they want to keep their position of power. And so they decide, look, let's just wait till after the Passover, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all these pilgrims who are here will leave, the city will kind of go back to normal, then we'll be able to get Jesus. 
They'll be free to arrest him and kill him without inciting a revolt. So their minds are made up. The verdict has been rendered and Jesus' days are now numbered. Look at verse three. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You're always going to have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As we look into this little section of of scripture, first note that they gather at Simon the leper's house. You got to realize lepers were not allowed inside the city limits because their disease was so contagious and it was virtually incurable. What Mark, I think, is subtly putting between the lines is that Jesus had healed this man, and now they're at the home of this former outcast. You see, Jesus has this way of taking the outcast and bringing them in, finding the outsider and drawing them near. And at some point during the meal, a woman enters the scene. We don't know much about her, but we know that she's carrying this expensive alabaster flask with this oil that has been, uh, that comes from India. And it's very, very expensive. See, this is not some cheap knockoff perfume at CVS. It's imported. It's rare. It's extravagant. In fact, we're told that it costs 300 denarii. That, uh, each denarii was a day's wage. So basically, this woman just took a year's salary and dumped it and emptied it all out on Jesus. Not sparingly, not a tiny drop, not a handful. She empties out all of it. The scene kind of makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's kind of weird to us. Like, why would she do this? It's very intimate. It's very extravagant. It shows this kind of devotion and this gratitude that, again, just makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Now, some at the dinner party are indignant. They saw it as a waste of money. In fact, John's gospel in chapter 12 tells us that it was Judas who was leading the charge to criticize this woman. See, verbally, he expresses, man, this was a wasted gesture. We could have taken that and sold that and given it to the poor. John's gospel tells us Jesus didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. He had his hands all over the money bag. And John tells us he often would take money for his own personal benefit. See, had she given the flask to him, he would have sold it and pocketed the money. See, this woman gave the very best that she had. Jesus doesn't see her sacrifice as a waste, does he? He commends her. While everyone else is reprimanding her, Jesus sticks up for her. She gave all she had, and in doing so, she was giving her whole self to Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus interprets what she's doing and says, she has anointed me. She's actually preparing my body for burial. Again, Jesus just slides it in there that he's going to die. Now, it's worth noting that it's a woman who anoints Jesus. And I point this out because women were not very well regarded in this time period. Do you know their testimony wasn't even admissible in court? They were habitually neglected and often mistreated. What I want to do is point this out because the gospels go out of their way to show the presence and the significance of women to Jesus. It was women who helped fund the ministry. It was a woman today who anoints Jesus, and it'll be women who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. It's going to be them who go and tell the scared disciples who have fled the scene. See, the gospels often show women as the most faithful and reliable followers of Jesus. That's just for free today. In this scene, Jesus sees a woman who gives her very best to show her affection and her devotion to Jesus. Judas saw a missed opportunity to line his pockets. And so in the next verses, we're going to see he figures out, maybe there's another way that I can get some silver. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray them to portray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Wednesday night comes to an ominous end. What began with whispers of betrayal ends with a structured plan. You see, Judas leaves the dinner party that night and makes contact with the religious chief priest to betray Jesus for a fee. The committee had previously decided to wait until after the feasts to make their move. But an opportunity presents itself to them. And Mark says they were glad about it. It's too good to pass up. Though the timetable has moved up, but now they've got an inside man. And you don't let that go. So they make the deal. Preparations are made and the plans are set. Now look at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you there. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as they had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So now it's Thursday morning. This is the time when the last final preparations for the Passover are made. And as according to the law, it's the day that the lambs are slaughtered. Later on, they'll start making the meal. The lamb will be roasted. They'll gather the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. Wine will be served as well because this is a celebratory meal. See, as they uh, eat together, there's not, this isn't just a, 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 a haphazard casual meal. When they gather together for the Passover, there's actually a liturgy to it. There's an order. There's a flow to the meal. Scriptures are read and songs are sung. They eat and they remember and they celebrate this, that first Passover. They kind of enter into the story. And so we're told that Jesus instructs them to go secure a place for this meal. 
You see, they'd been staying in Bethany, but they needed a place inside Jerusalem because the law said you had to take the Passover inside the city walls of Jerusalem. So Jesus sends out a couple of disciples to go and find a place. But Jesus has taken care of every detail. See, nothing is outside of his control here. This meal is going to go down exactly as Jesus intends for it to What I love, this is the second time now that we hear that strangers only need to hear that Jesus has need of something they have and they willingly give it up. Remember on Sunday, Jesus said, go into this town and there'll be a a donkey. Just go ahead and take it. And when anyone questions you, tell them the Lord has need of it. And they go, hey man, we're cool. And they give them the donkey, right? The, The disciples walk up and say, Jesus needs this room. And he's like, awesome. It's all ready for you right now. In these first 16 verses, a lot of preparations have been made. And how people prepare is directly tied to how they see Jesus. So the religious elite, they see Jesus as a threat. So how do they prepare? They prepare to betray him. The woman at the Wednesday night meal sees Jesus as a worthy worthy of sacrifice and devotion. And so she gives all that she has to honor him. And in doing so, prepares his body for burial. Judas sees Jesus as an opportunity to make a buck. So the way he prepares is by betraying him and using him. The disciples see Jesus as their Lord and their friend. So they prepare to share a meal with him. So that begs the question for us this morning. How do we see Jesus? Because how we see Jesus will inform how we prepare for him. How are we preparing ourselves when we come to this table to eat with him? Is he a threat to the things that matter most to us and therefore he's expendable? Is Jesus kind of an opportunity to be used for your own ends? Or is he worthy of your all that you'd be willing to give up anything for him? Is he your Lord and friend that you desire to eat with? See, how we see Jesus will shape how we prepare to dine with him. Now that we've seen the preparation for the table, let's look at these last verses to see how we can participate at his table. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And, they, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So again, the disciples are gathering together for this last Passover meal. And before the meal begins, Jesus says, just so you know, in our midst, there is a betrayer. That kind of puts a damper on things, doesn't it? Not a great way to start off a celebratory meal. Now, with all the death predictions that Jesus has been making, with all the talk of destroying the temple and the rising tension, they feel the weight of this announcement. And it says they all become sorrowful. And of course, they know like one of us a betrayer. They're trying to figure out, well, who is it, right? If it were me, I'm like, let's get this guy out of here. We can take care of that tonight, Jesus. Now, what Mark leaves vague, both Matthew and John 
make really clear that Jesus in the meal identifies Judas as the betrayer. So he's outed right there in front of Jesus, in front of all his friends. And Jesus gives him a sober warning. He basically says, look, what you need to know is this has been prophesied long before you even came along. But what you need to know is this. What you're about to do, you're choosing to do. Here in this one verse, we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility tied together in perfect harmony. What's amazing to me is Jesus doesn't kick Judas out. He lets him eat at the table. He's already washed his feet, and now he prepares to dine with them. Everyone participates in the meal that day. Intimacy is offered. Judas is forewarned. He still has a moment to change his mind. He still doesn't have to go down that path, and yet he hardens his heart like Pharaoh. And then the next verse is Jesus says he went right ahead with the Passover meal. Okay, so let me help explain it to you. If you've never been to a Passover Seder, every Passover has a presider. Usually it would be the father of the family. It's this leader of the meal. He's gonna take them on a journey and it's his job to lead the family through the meal. Because see, you don't just eat the Passover meal. You explain the meal. You experience the meal. You're supposed to enter into the story. They're supposed to feel the oppression of the slavery of their forefathers. They're to enter in and reflect and remember that God was mighty to save them. The meal's meant to be a dramatic reenactment. And so there's four basic movements to the liturgy of the meal. And each movement is marked by a cup of wine. It's a good meal. At the beginning of the meal, the first cup is poured. This cup is called the cup of sanctification. And sanctification here just means to be set apart. That God said, you are my people. I have set you apart and declared you as mine. The first course of bitter herbs is served and the, the presider of the meal gives a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, this is a really quick course. Right after that, the lamb is put on to the table. Right there, front and center, everybody can see it, but it's not eaten just yet. Now, a second cup is poured. And at this point, the leader of the story, of, of the meal, would retell the story. And it would go something kind of like this He would have said, You remember Moses standing on the banks of the river Nile? where he approached Pharaoh and said, the Lord God says, let my people go so that they may go and worship me. Moses had come to deliver them so that they could find their identity as God's people, not as Pharaoh's slaves. And you remember Pharaoh? He just wouldn't do it, would he? And so God sent the plagues one by one. And this display of power and glory did nothing to soften Pharaoh's heart. It only made him more and more resolved to resist the Lord. And so finally, you know the story, the last plague came, the worst one, the death of the firstborn son. Now God had come to Moses and told him, listen, the angel of death is coming tonight to bring judgment on the whole land. The only way to escape judgment was to take shelter under the blood of the lamb. And so they were to take a spotless lamb and kill it. They were to take the blood and paint it over the door frames of the house as a sign that this house was marked and covered by the blood of the lamb. Now the blood marks them, but it does more than that. See, if it was just 
marking, they could have used paint or dye. But a lamb is killed, a life is given because blood represents life. See, if life was to be preserved inside of the home, life must be sacrificed. And so for this task, only blood would do. So the father of this meal would say, on that night, our ancestors ate a meal together as a family, roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. And they ate unleavened bread because they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. It would be a quick meal that night. They needed to have their shoes on, have their things ready, packed to go. And that night, death did come to the land of Egypt. Any house with the blood of the lamb, the angel saw and death passed right over them. The judgment passed over them. Judgment was coming, and the only way out was to trust in God's plan of salvation. Any Israelite who trusted in their own plan, any Israelite who said, I'm not painting my door like that, anyone who did not do as God told them suffered judgment. Any home in Egypt who caught wind of what was going on and said, I don't know about you, but I think their God is the true God. Anyone in Egypt who painted that blood on their house, death and judgment passed over them. And what you have to know is in every house in Egypt that night, it would taste death. But for those who trusted in the Lord, the lamb would taste death in place of the firstborn. For those who disregarded the Lord in his Passover, the firstborn would taste death. In every single house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. In other words, for those who trusted in God, the lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb was a substitute. The lamb paid the debt so the firstborn didn't have to. You got to remember at that meal, every firstborn son looking at the table saw the lamb and said, the only reason I'm not dead is because the lamb was killed in my place. At the center of the Passover meal is the bloody death of a helpless victim. Now at this point in the meal, after telling the story and entering in, they would sing a couple songs together, Psalm 113 and 114. They would drink the second cup, the cup of deliverance, testifying that God had delivered his people. And then the leader of the meal would take the unleavened bread. He would look to God. He would break it. He would give thanks. And he would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. And then they would eat the lamb and the unleavened bread. At this point, the third cup is poured, which is called the cup of redemption. And after this, they would sing Psalms 115, 116, 117, and 118. Now, after that, the Passover concludes with this fourth cup. It's called the cup of expectation because they know, though we've been delivered, we've yet to enter fully into God's rest. There is still more deliverance to come. Now, that's a really quick overview of a Jewish Passover. Now that we know what they would have expected, let's look and see what Jesus did as he flips the script. And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. 
And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this meal begins just like any other Passover meal would have begun just like they would have expected. The first cup is poured, the bitter herbs are eaten, the main meal is served, the roasted lamb is on the table, and Jesus would have started telling them the story of the Exodus. And they'd have been listening and hearing and entering in and remembering. And it would have gone just as they would have expected. And then they would have poured that cup and Jesus would have taken the bread He would have given thanks. He would have broken it. And they would have expected him to say, just like every other Passover meal, this is the bread of our forefathers' affliction from the suffering they experienced in the land of Egypt. But it's here that Jesus flips the script. It's here that Jesus transforms the meal. Instead, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. He's saying, no longer is this the bread of our forefathers' affliction. Now this is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to suffer to give you ultimate freedom. I'm going to give you ultimate freedom from sin and death. And then they would have started to eat the main course. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you're thinking, Jesus, you kind of messed up the Passover. (laughs) Where's the script, man? They're contemplating, "What what did he mean? that his body would be broken. What do you mean that the bread was his body? But Jesus doesn't stop there. The third cup is poured. Remember I told you it's the cup of redemption, which signifies that a price was paid to deliver them out of Egypt. And Jesus picks up that cup and he says, this cup of redemption is actually my blood and it's poured out for you because I'm gonna be the payment price for your redemption. See, what Jesus is saying is, I am the ultimate lamb. My blood will purchase forgiveness and redemption for all who are joined to me, anyone who eats at my table. And then if that weren't enough, he hits pause on the meal. Remember, I told you there's supposed to be this fourth and final cup. Jesus says, we're gonna stop right here. We're not gonna have this last cup because it's time to go and I won't drink that cup again till we all do it all the saints of God, all the people from all time at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we'll all hold up that last cup together, and we will sing about his final redemption. He puts the meal on pause, and he says, let's go. See, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he invited, he invited his disciples not merely to stand by and watch, but he told them, you need to take and you need to eat. He was calling them to participate in the meal. See, when Jesus flipped the script and transformed the meal, he was saying the Passover lamb that we've celebrated was merely a placeholder. It was getting your heart and your soul ready. It created a pattern of expectation so that one day you'd be ready to receive me, the ultimate Passover lamb. What did John say when he first saw Jesus? coming down to the river Jordan to be baptized, John saw him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul, writing in the book of 1 Corinthians, said that Christ, 
our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Peter, who was at that meal, later wrote a letter and he said, but you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were bought with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. What they're saying, what the New Testament is saying is that Jesus is the greater and truer Passover lamb. The deliverance and redemption that the people in Israel experienced that night was just pointing to a greater a greater and better salvation. And when death passed through Egypt that night, everybody had to take shelter under the blood of a perfect spotless lamb. It was the only way to escape judgment and to experience God's deliverance. And the same is true for us today. Death comes for us all. Judgment is coming. And the only way that we can escape it is to take shelter under the perfect spotless lamb of God. And his name is Jesus Christ. I love how one pastor said it as I was reading this week. He said, too often people want the exodus without the Passover. They want the liberation without the blood. They want the salvation without the sacrifice. And they want freedom without the cross. But friends, these freedoms come at a great cost. It's free to us, but it was costly to him. You cannot have deliverance without the cost. They're inseparable. Like a Passover lamb, Jesus was the chosen victim to be sacrificed. He was spotless. He was perfect. And his blood was smeared, marking any of those who take shelter under his care. His body was broken. His blood was shed to become the bread of life and to become the cup of redemption for us. See, the death of Christ will not impact the bystander. If you keep your distance and just watch the table, it'll never have importance for you. It'll never stir your soul. We've got to enter in, have a seat at the table and become participants, right? The death of Christ will only stir us to the degree that we recognize it should have been us dying, that Christ died in our place. So that means we have to receive him. See, the death of Christ doesn't automatically do anything for you. Let me put it this way. If you were starving to death, somebody could put a meal before you and all you'd have to do is eat. But just being in its presence does nothing for you. In the same way, Jesus says, don't look at the bread. Don't look at the cup. He says, eat it and drink it. The broken body of Christ is the bread of life. His body was broken so that we could be mended. His blood was poured to pay our redemption price. And so when we come to the Lord's table to remember him, he's calling us to more than just mere recalling of memories. We are meant to be transformed by this table. The Lord's Supper, each time we take it, is a visible sermon of the gospel. It's a living picture that in our hands we hold the body of Christ, and in our cup we hold his blood. And so we don't just merely look backwards at the crucifixion, which we do. The Lord's Supper is also meant for us to hold out hope for that day when we'll drink that cup together with him. It's meant to help us to look forward. That's why Paul says that when we eat this cup, we're actually proclaiming the Lord's resurrection and his future coming. So Seven Mile Road, I want you to prepare your heart for him today. I want you to pour out your life for him like he poured out his life for you. Don't be resolved to stand by and merely watch. 
See, that night there was one at the supper who went through all the motions. He ate the bread, he drank the cup, but for him it was merely a ritual. So what I don't mean is that if you just come and consume, that it'll have any importance for you. It's a posture of the heart. We take Christ as we worship him and regard him as the ultimate and greatest value. Judas's heart was set on disregarding Christ and betraying him, and Jesus knew it. And he knows every single heart here in this room today. So as we come to the table, let's examine our hearts this morning. Let's prepare ourselves for the table and take this opportunity to confess our sins to him. And where there's sin, grace abounds and we can repent. And then come, let us participate in this meal together. Let's pray.